We're going to look this morning at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Before we do that, I'm going to ask Brian if he'll come and read uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 18. And uh, this is a passage that's along the same theme about our, our need to uh, obey God um, and not to trust in man. Jeremiah chapter 17, it's on page 775, and Brian will read God's Word to us. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees and on the high hills, my mountains in the land and your wealth and all your treasures, I will give away as plunder together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I give you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever." This is what the Lord says. Crushed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a bush in a wasteland. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him, He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs, it did not lay, is the man who gains riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him, and in the end he will be proved to be a fool. A glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of your sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For you're the one I praise. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know I have not desired the day of despair that passes my lips and is open before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. 
Let's turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, where what we've, it's on page uh, 1,225. What we've got with John, or where John has written his letter to people that he wants them to know the truth about God, he wants them to know God, to have fellowship with one another and with Jesus Christ. He's told them that there's no darkness in God. He's told them that we have to confess our sins. Uh, He's told them how our sins are forgiven through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we read now at verse 3 to verse 6, we know that we have come, this is 1 John 2, verse 3, we know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys His words, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Now, it's a really hard thing to say that we know something. Uh, in, In our culture, people don't like people who know things. They don't like know-it-alls at at one level. And it's certainly when it comes to religion, when it comes to God, the notion that anyone would say that they know something, that's actually quite difficult for a lot of people. There's also a tradition within the free church and within Scottish Presbyterianism that um, you don't want to be too sure of anything. You know, people sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And you say, well, how do you know? if you were an, uh, an older person brought up in a free church tradition, quite often you might, ask, you might be asked, um, are you a Christian? And the answer would be, I hope so. Which when you think about it, what kind of answer is that really? But I hope so. I hope I am a Christian. Out of almost a reluctance, sometimes a humility, but sometimes also I think a false humility, which is kind of saying, well, how can you ever be sure? How can we know how can we ever be sure? So, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, there are um, two tests, actually probably three. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at the test of love, and I think the following week, it's the test of faith. But uh, this week, we're going to look at the test of obedience. Okay. How do we know we know? The word knowledge is used 25 times in this letter, and there are, are different ways. I mean, if, if, if you say you're a Christian, and I said to you, how do you know that you're a Christian, what would you answer? And this wasn't going to come out right. I was going to say, if I was the devil and wanted to upset you in your, in your knowledge, in your certainty, how easy would it be? Well, there are two ways that are generally understood. One is objective knowledge. That statement like, the grass is green, in, in philosophical terms, it's called empiricism. It's, there's a fact. Whether you feel it or not, you don't feel that the grass is green. The grass is green. These chairs are red. Those are facts. How do you know that you're a Christian? There are some people who would say, well, the way that you know you're a Christian is there are a, a set of doctrines that you have to believe. And if I was sitting, if I'm standing here right now and I'm interviewing you and checking whether you're a Christian, then there's a kind of tick box that goes, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe He died on the cross for your sins? Yes. And so on. There's that kind of knowledge. There's also subjective knowledge. 
Um, what's subjective knowledge? I am afraid of spiders. I fear spiders. I don't actually. I'm afraid of flying. It's not an objective thing. It's a subjective thing. Existentialism. We feel things. And you get a lot of people who say, I know that I am a Christian because I feel the love of God. I feel God's presence. Or I felt, I remember it in the past, I was in this meeting, and I just felt this. Now, the people to whom John were writing, was writing, he was having to deal with people who were subjectivists. They were um, people who really, it was, it was how you felt. Now, what's interesting about John here is he doesn't contradict that. He doesn't say, no, 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 forget how you feel. He doesn't deny that feelings are important, but he does say this, that you should test your feelings, because there are lots and lots of different reasons that we could have feelings, and that's why, of course, many of us doubt, because we say, I had that feeling, but how do I know that that feeling didn't just come about in other ways? So, what he does, what John does here is he sets them an objective test. He doesn't say that the subjective side is wrong, but he sets them as an objective test. And it's interesting that the test that he sets them isn't their knowledge. It isn't the tick box thing. It's not something that you could go and go tick. It, it, it's something that's a little bit more practical. It's not some mystical experience. It's not some intellectual insight. He says, now we know we have come to know Him. I say also this is important because how do we avoid being deceived? Um, some of us in the membership group this morning were talking about belonging to the church. And you, you belong to the church and you go to a church and people talk about Jesus. How do you know it's for real? Or you watch someone on the television or you listen someone to someone or you read someone. How do you know that what they're saying is true? And it can get very, very confusing. People say, well, you know, there are people who've been Christians, who've been Christians for many years, and they've been misled. What chance do I have? I, I, I know nothing. And that is, that's a real problem. How do we know who are Christians, and how do we know that we are Christians? There's a story told of a man called John McLeod, no relation to any McLeod here, I hasten to add, from a place called Assent who in the 18th century traveled around the whole of Britain to see if he could find any Christians. And it's told that when he came back to Aston, he had a fairly high standard of what it involved, actually probably a low standard. And he said to his friend, I've traveled the whole of Britain, and I've only found two true believers, that's me and thee, and I have my doubts about you. There are heresy hunters like that, you know, the, who, who question if, if, you know, are, are you really a Christian? It's, it's quite funny because um, I received a couple of letters this week uh, from people who were saying, well, David, we really suspect that you're not really a Christian at all, um, which was interesting. Well, how do we know? John Calvin says this, in short, no evil has been more common in all ages than vainly to profess God's name. I suspect one of the biggest problems we face in the church today are lots and lots of people who think they are Christians or who say that they are Christians and who actually are not. It's a horrible thing in biblical terms not to be a Christian. It's worse not to be a Christian and to think that you are. So, how can we possibly know that? It's not enough just to profess faith in Christ. 
because people can do that. People do that all the time. I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I accept Jesus. But we, it has, it has to be more than that. Not just saying, not just words. There's a, what we call a bare profession of faith, which is just saying, I believe, and that's it. There's what some churches operate, which is called a proven profession of faith. Prove that you're born again. How can you prove that to somebody? What right does a church have to judge that? Well, there's what we call an accredited profession of faith, which means that you profess your faith and your life doesn't contradict that. And that's what John is doing here. He is giving us an objective test for, real, for a subjective experience, if you like, for our being born again, for our having come to know Jesus Christ. He's saying, okay, here's a test for you. And he speaks about obedience. Now, I, I honestly believe that this is actually a hard thing for us to take because we have this really, really negative image of what obedience is. And we, we, it, it carries some kind of dictatorial thing. So, I've called it the obedience of love. And if you look across to chapter 3, verse 22, you'll see how important this is to John. Um, or let me read from verse 21. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. And also in chapter 5 and verse 3, this is love for God to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. Now, the important thing here about God's commands is they are not a list of rules. They are what God tells us to do because He loves us. And in particular, the two things that are mentioned here, the main things are to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. Now, I want to try and persuade you that obedience is something which is not a negative thing, even as Christians that we reluctantly do, but there is such a thing as joyful obedience. I think for many of us, the idea of obedience doesn't fit well with notions of grace and of freedom and of love. We instinctively feel that rules and love don't go together. We live in a very confused culture in that way, so you'll get lots of parents who might say, well, because I love my children, I don't give them many rules, which is actually often uh, a cop-out and a way out. Um, I have in my mind from childhood, when I hear the term obedience, uh, the old Doctor Who and the Daleks, where Davros, the Daleks, are going, you will obey, you will obey. And I, I just have this image of, um, you know, in church, when a minister talks about obedience, it's like, you will obey, you will obey. And everything in me screams, no, I won't. To almost anybody. It's, I, I, am, I, am, I am this rotten kind of person that if you tell me not to do something, that instinctively makes it very attractive, that I want to go and do it just to prove to you that I'm not going to obey you, and I'm not a slave of anyone, and I'm a free man, and all that kind of stuff. And that can carry over into how we deal with God. And we do have to challenge ourselves on that one. Why should we regard obedience to God as being anything other than good? Our human autonomy and our human selfishness needs to be dealt with. Human autonomy, this is where we go profoundly countercultural because we live in a culture which says that 
the most important thing is human freedom and human autonomy. You want to die? Fine. You've got the right to choose death. You want to do whatever you want? Fine. There are obviously things that people put as kind of um, caveats to that, but in general, it, it's seen as being, being free, it means being autonomous, means being making absolutely your own decisions, not obeying anybody else. And that can transfer over into God. We speak about God as our friend, we speak about God as our father, we speak about God as our pal, uh, God as Lord and Master, God as the one who says and we do. Although most of us in theory would accept that, emotionally we struggle with that a little bit more. Now, what John is saying is this is absolutely crucial about whether, how we know whether we are Christians or not. Because if we are claiming to know God, what he's saying is it will have a powerful effect on our daily lives. Truth is powerful, and truth changes lives. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And then also in that book, the book of the covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. This is what it says, "'This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.'" Choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, hold fast to Him. Obedience is not speculation. It's the basis of all Christian service. And if you don't obey Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. No matter what you say about what you believe, no matter what you say about how you feel, if you refuse to obey Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. Now, there's been a teaching for a while that goes around and says, well, I became a Christian, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and later on I'm going to accept Him as Lord. That's not how it works. You never find that teaching anywhere in the New Testament. You take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here just now, and you hear me saying, I'd love you to be a Christian, and you're thinking about what that means, it's not as simple as signing on the dotted line. It's not as simple as saying, well, I just believe that. It's not as simple as saying, well, I'll join the church and see how it goes. It's not right to say, well, I'm just going to wait until I get this warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart about God. What it is, is to become a Christian is to call Jesus Christ Lord. It is to commit absolutely every to, everything to Him. It is as radical a step. It is more radical a step than getting married, than committing your life to somebody else. Because to become a Christian is to entrust yourself wholly to a God whom you love and trust so much that when He tells you to do something, you do it. This is not a form of legalism. God has revealed Himself in Christ, who is the Word, 
The coming of Christ to us is the challenge. It's not that you go to the Old Testament and say, well, in the Old Testament they had all these laws, and then in the New Testament Jesus came along and He made it much easier. In the Old Testament they had all these laws, partly to point us to Christ, partly to point to our own sins, partly as guidance for our lives, but ultimately to show us that we were in need of a Savior. In the New Testament, the standard is actually much higher. And Christ didn't take away from the law of the Old Testament. He expounded it. He explained it. He added to it and made it a whole lot more difficult. Because what Christ wanted was not a group of people who would keep a set of religious laws. What Christ wanted are people who would so love Him that when He asked them to do something, even if they didn't understand it, they would trust Him so much, they would say, yes, Lord. What Christ wants is people who abandon self-seeking, who take up the cross and follow Him. Grace doesn't abolish God's law. Grace internalizes God's law by writing it on our hearts. The Christian does not become less aware of sin, but becomes more aware of sin. And it hurts us more, not because we think, uh-oh, we're in trouble, we're going to be punished, but because we see the one who died for our sin, and every sin that we commit is another nail in His hands and in His feet. So, obedience is not something that uh, we, we look at and we say, well, it's just another religious thing and we're free of that. Jesus is really, John is saying to us, look, if you say you love Jesus, you're going to do what He says. Now, that is seen in the other way he puts it when he talks about lying to Jesus. Verse 8 of chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There we lie to ourselves. If we say, I don't sin, I'm not a major sinner, there's no real difficulty there. I committed sin before, but no, I'm pretty clean just now. John says, you're lying to yourself. Now here, he says, if you say I know him, verse 4, but don't do what he commands, you're a liar you're a liar, and the truth is not in him. See, we don't like that kind of talk. We want a preacher to come alongside or a friend to come alongside and put his arm around us and say, you really are a Christian. You just need to try a wee bit harder, or we need to help you through this. But John is saying, look, if you claim, I know Jesus, but you don't do what Jesus asks, you don't know Jesus. You are lying. The truth is not in you. Titus 1 verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. It's a horrible thing to say about someone who professes to be a Christian. Detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. But it's far better that you're told that now, and you deal with that now, than you have an eternity of hell when you hear Jesus saying, when you come to Jesus and say, Lord, didn't we do many, many wonderful things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all this wonderful stuff? And Jesus says, go away from me. I never knew you. Don't lie in that sense. Um, I, I was listening. when I, I walked down to the church this morning, and I, I listened to Ravi Zacharias' podcast, and he, he was talking in his latest thing about how one of the largest companies in India, the chief executive, has just gone to prison because he's confessed that he made up a whole lot of financial figures and a billion dollars or whatever that was in his account. And, and in his confession, he said, 
I was deceived and I was deceiving and I got caught up. I rode this tiger of deceit and I didn't want to get off in case it ate me. And what happens spiritually is very often the case that people come along to church, that they go through the motions, that they say the right things, that sometimes even they may feel the right things, but it's a deceitful thing because they don't obey Jesus Christ. It's a form of lying. Every time we refuse to accept God's way and God's will and God's Word, we slander God. We're saying, we actually know better. And that's when we do the sort of pick-and-mix religion that a lot of people do. Oh, I like that bit in the Bible. I like this bit. We, we do lifestyle religion, where we say, well, we'll choose to do this on a Sunday morning. We'll do something else on a Sunday evening. We'll do something else during the week. We'll accept this bit of the Bible. We won't accept that bit of the Bible, and so on. And we're saying to God, you got it wrong. We know better. And we, we, we kid ourselves and we lie to Him, and we lie to others. So, John says, we don't do that. And then he talks about love. He says, look, if we obey His words, God's love is truly made complete in Him. Again, that's an interesting way of putting it, because John should be saying, you would think he would say, if you're following it logically, you'd say, well, if anyone obeys God's Word, God's truth is made complete in him. He's not a liar. He's truthful. But he goes a step further. He said, God's love is made complete. Truth is always connected to love. Love is used uh, 18 times in this letter, and uh, truth and love just go together. Love delights in obedience. Love delights to do God's will. John 15, verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. You do not set love and obedience as over against one another. Now, it's important, just to back off just a little bit, it's important to realize that what is not being said here is that as a Christian, you are perfect, or as a Christian, you perfectly obey. Nobody does that. Calvin puts it beautifully. He says, he does not mean that there are those who wholly keep the law and who keep His commandments. There's no such instance can be found in the world. But those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. It's the whole Romans 7 thing where we say, the good that I want to do, that I do not do, but the evil that I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. And he then goes on ultimately to say at the end of that section, who's going to deliver me from this struggle? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the point is this. It is just simply that if we say we love Jesus Christ, then the proof of our love is that we do what He says. God is love, 1 John 4, 16. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. It just… If you have somebody who says they love you… I mean, we live in this world where people use language all the time, and you just think, does it actually mean anything? If you have someone who says that they love you, and then by their actions they deny that. You're a woman, and, and your husband beats you up 
and then begs with you not to go to the police because he loves you and he tells you how much he loves you and how he feels. Do you believe that? It's a very, very, very strange kind of love. And we, we, we take the term love and we, we take it as an emotion. And I think that the Bible twists that or changes that or challenges that and says, no, no, no. The proof of love is in what you do. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. That's why it's so bizarre when you get people who, who sing about loving Jesus and then in the same breath turn around and deny what he says. The, um, there's a slight difficulty in the verse here because uh, it says God's love is made complete. Is, does, does this mean our love for God or does it mean the love of God? Um, I tend to think that it's actually both. But the point is basically this, that the more we obey God, the more we open the door for His love to work in our lives. Obedience is the way to growth and maturity. Disobedience is the way to ruin and to destruction. The mature Christian has learned to trust Jesus Christ. And that's why he then goes on to talk about this walk. We, we walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. John has spoken of fellowship with Christ, of walking in the light, and of knowing Christ. He now speaks in Pauline language of being in Christ. And he says, if you're in Christ, you behave like Christ. Being a Christian consists in essence of a personal relationship to God in Christ, knowing Him, loving Him, and abiding Him, and behaving like Him. What did Jesus do? He pleased God. He laid down His life for others. He controlled His tongue. He did His Father's will. He loved the poor and needy. I love uh, this quote that I put up there from McShane. Uh, I just think, I think about it a lot, actually. It's a very powerful thing. He was um, visiting in the grass market in Edinburgh as a student with Andrew Boner, and this is what he says, "'Accompanied Andrew Boner on one of his rounds through some of the most miserable habitation I ever beheld.' Such scenes I never dreamed of. Ah, why am I such a stranger to the poor of my own native town? I have passed their doors thousands of times. I've admired the huge piles of black building with their lofty chimneys breaking the sun's rays. Why have I never ventured within? How dwelleth the love of God in me? See, McShane got it. How can God's love dwell in you if you don't care? How can God's love dwell in you if the sickness and the illness and the injustice and the evil and the poverty and the cruelty in the world mean nothing to you if all you're obsessed with is your own spiritual condition, your own material condition, your own where you are at. If you have the love of Christ, you will obey Christ, you will walk like Christ, you will live as Jesus did. And that's, an, uh, that's a profoundly challenging thing. That's way beyond religion. And it does challenge us in terms of where we live and how we are at. There are far too many Christians who live in holy huddles, who look out at the world and who condemn the world. But we're not to do that. We are to be people who do as Christ did. Christ was incarnated. Christ went, came into this world. How can the love of God dwell in me if I don't care? If I am so self-obsessed, it's all about me. It's all about me. And Jesus just gets added. 
And you can spiritualize that all you want and say, I'm just focusing on God and I'm just so concentrated on God. If you concentrate on God, you would walk as Jesus did. So John says, look, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That, by the way, is why religion is so relatively easy and Christianity is so difficult. To walk as Jesus did, that's an incredible standard. But that's where all this about being forgiven for our sin, about receiving the Holy Spirit, and so on. That's what we look for. We look for the absence of sin and the presence of love. We take these contrasts that John continually uses, light and darkness, love and hatred, truth and falsehood. We go back to Deuteronomy, and we hear, choose life. Choose life. Our daily life is a daily walk of obedience before the Lord. What's the, the old hymn says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There are far too many of us as Christians who are wanting the happiness without the obedience, and it doesn't work. The obedience, you obey Jesus because why would Jesus ask you to do something that was wrong? Why would Jesus ask you to do something that would go against His Word, that all things work together for the good of those who love God? It is the most sensible thing in the world that when Jesus holds out His hand and asks us to take His hand, that we open our hand and we take His hand and we don't hold on to the things that keep us from Him. So how do you know that you are a Christian? You know that you are a Christian if you obey Jesus Christ. If you find yourself in continual disobedience to Jesus, if you're saying, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that, and you know that God is asking you to do something, then I have no assurance for you. I cannot say to you, oh, you really are a Christian. You're just going through a rough patch. I don't know. Because the one test that's been given us here, you failed. Now, please let me stress again, I'm not saying that this is teaching Every Christian is absolutely perfect in obedience to the commands of God. We stumble and we fall. But if we desire, if we claim to know Jesus, we will, we will do what He says. It's not rocket science. It's not, it's not actually that difficult to grasp and to understand what is being said. So, it may be that um, as we finish this, I just… It may be that some of you have to say, I'm, I don't know where I'm at. I've, I've, I've professed this Christianity, but um, I, I'm not walking this road. I'm not walking as Jesus did. Well, that's where repentance comes in, isn't it? That's where forgiveness comes in. That's where renewal comes in. You do need to repent. I think for me, I, I look at it and say, yeah, I have to repent too. I don't want to lie. I don't want to lie to Jesus. I don't want to lie to myself. I don't want to lie to other people. But I think, in all honesty, I can say this, that it is the greatest joy in the world to obey Jesus Christ. I trust Him completely. I trust Him absolutely. Um, it's an old grace. It's a bit trite, but it works. Where He sends me, I will follow. What He feeds me, I will swallow. I'm just, I'm going with Jesus. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone saying, Lord, I'm, I'm following you.
If you're not a Christian, you need to become one. You need to seek forgiveness, and you need to commit everything to follow Him. If you're a Christian who's really, really, really been struggling, you need to break out of the cycle of deceit, self-deceit for yourself and deceit to others, and ultimately lying to God. And you need to just say, Lord, I will follow. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would bless us as we reflect upon Your Word. We pray that we would be obedient daughters and sons. We pray, O Lord, that uh, if any of us here don't know You, that we would come to see that You are the only one worth following, the only one worth obeying. And we pray for those of us who profess faith in You, that our profession would be real and that our obedience would be real, and that we would not allow any other idols, anything to come between us and obeying Your Word, obeying Your will. Lord, we do ask forgiveness, and we ask for a renewed commitment and a renewed enthusiasm and a renewed joy. We don't obey out of reluctance, out of fear. We obey out of joy because the commands of the Lord are pure and righteous and gold and sweet to the mouth. The commands of the Lord bring life, and so we obey Your command to believe in You and to love one another. In your name we ask it. Amen.